0: Welcome to Glendale Baptist Church Bible Study. We are continuing our studies in the book of Revelation, and particularly we are in chapter 20. Uh, So far, we've spent most of our time looking at the first three verses and emphasizing the different historical Protestant views in, in, in terms of understanding or interpreting the thousand years that are alluded to there. Today we will pick up on verses 4 through 6, which is the bottom half of that top half of um, of, uh, chapter 20, and actually it constitutes a second vision. And so let me just read those verses and then we will attempt to unpack it. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus uh, and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is one of the uh, reasons one has to be clear and consistent on how one interprets the thousand years that are alluded to in the first three verses, because this is not a second thousand-year period. This is the same uh, thousand-year period. So really, verse 4 is the beginning of a second vision. And I would argue that basically what we have here is the thousand years that are alluded to in the first three verses are now viewed from a different angle or a different perspective. The first perspective is an earthly one, and now the second one is a heavenly one. Now, let's notice the way that John begins verse four. He opens by saying, I saw, uh, I saw indicating that a this is another vision. And what he sees are thrones that are occupied by those who have been given authority to judge. Now, in addition, it's an interesting phrase that he uses. He says he sees, and it's not the only time, it's not the first time in Revelation, but he says he sees the souls, which is interesting because obviously souls, by definition, are immaterial and they can't be seen. So obviously he's referring to, this is a vision, and what he sees are the souls of those who have uh, refused to worship the beast, and who have not received the mark of the beast, and they have been faithful. Uh, those who have been beheaded, those are, who are martyrs. And in this scene, there are two important parallel passages that I think are helpful to uh, sort of put it together. The first one is chapter four. In chapter four of Revelation, you remember, you see uh, John is uh, this is when he leaves the, the churches in chapters 2 and 3 where he sees the activity in the churches. And then, and actually I'll read verses 1 and 2. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with uh, with one seated on the throne. And so he goes on to describe uh, the 24 uh, elders that he also sees seated on thrones. So certainly there is a parallel to John seeing these thrones, and it's clearly a heavenly scene. So you see a parallel to the open door in heaven where he sees... The Son of Man or the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, and he sees 24 elders who are also, those who who have crowns, seated on the throne, and you'll remember that when we went over chapter 4, we indicated that the 24 elders were symbolic, a symbolic representation of the church. So certainly this comes to mind, and we'll come back to that later, but then also in Daniel. There are two places, well, both of them are in chapter uh, 7 of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 7, we'll look at verses 9 and 10, and then 21 and 22. And what, to sort of set it up, and there's constant, as we've uh, made reference to throughout our studies, there's constant references to Daniel uh, throughout the book of Revelation. It's really a companion, Old Testament companion, to many of the scenes that that John sees, but in chapters 7 verses 9 and 10, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. So we'll read verses 9 and 10, which just kind of describes the Ancient of Days, the Messiah uh, seated on the throne, and then we'll see what happens later in verses 21 and 22. So here's the description. In verses 9 and 10, as I looked, thrones were placed, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, let me just pause there for a moment, where you see similarly to Revelation 4, the one seated on a throne, and then accompanied by elders seated on the throne. So, even here, the Ancient of Days took his seat, and there were thrones that were placed, and the, the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head. Like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came uh, came out from him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, we jump over to verses twenty one and twenty two. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And he's ultimately, and, and a probably a clearer um, translation of, of what we see in verse 22 is that the judgment came in favor of the saints who had been persecuted by the one who made war against them. Now what John sees here in Revelation 20, he sees the souls of martyred saints seated in heavenly places, and they are ruling with Christ, or they are ruling with, they've been given Authority, And so you can certainly see uh, the, the parallel to what we've seen in chapter 4. But now this idea, though, the emphasis on the martyrdom of those who share in these seats of judgment, they are presented here as exalted, and they are presented here as being enthroned. In contrast to chapter 6, verse 9, where we see the blood of the martyrs that is under or that is poured out under the throne. So in chapter 6 they the blood of the martyrs which cries out how long the blood of the martyrs is sacrificed and they are it's a result of their suffering. But here John sees them not suffering. He doesn't see their blood. What he sees is he sees them victorious and he sees them enthroned. These martyred saints are described as having come to life and they have reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now this goes back to um, something we said a moment ago, why one's interpretations of the thousand years how it plays out in this whole scenario. In the amillennial position, we would say that the thousand years, the thousand years is the time from Christ's earthly ministry, specifically his resurrection and ascension until his return. In the postmillennial position, they would have Christ reigning on the earth for a thousand years. And if that's the case, if he reigns on the earth for a thousand years, then that means that resurrected saints will also be reigning with him physically on the earth for a thousand years. That would be problematic. In the the dispensational view, that the thousand years, it would be very similar to uh, to, to that of the post-millennials, that if this refers, if, if the, the church has been raptured away, then those who will reign with Christ for a thousand years, A, it will be on the earth, but it's not ind- indicative of all of the saints. In other words, all of the saints will not judge or reign or rule with him. So there's going to be several problems of consistency. If we're talking about Jesus reigning on the earth 4,000 years and dead saints who have been raised to life will be reigning with him and other saints are yet to be uh, caught up with Christ, again, you're going to have a lot of continuity issues if that's the interpretation. So therefore, um, we see that uh, this—and notice the the, the other phrase, and this is critical, I think, in this interpretation— question is because we are are told that uh, those who have been martyred have come to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years and then John says this is the first resurrection so the question is what is what is meant by the phrase uh, the first resurrection let me pause again and say that uh, verses four through six and and I can't emphasize this enough, are another perspective of the same thousand-year period as seen in verses 1 through 3. So whatever the first resurrection is will be understood in conjunction with how you understand the thousand years. For those who the to go back to the post millennial position, they would call the first resurrection if they if Christ is reigning on the earth for a thousand years, they would therefore limit this first resurrection to saints who specifically have been martyred, who will then be raised to reign with Christ on the earth. That would be a little scary and you know, to be quite honest. Uh, it would be strange, and it certainly would be inconsistent because you would have some deceased saints reigning, even as other saints are still on the earth, and that would be the Mount of Transfiguration for a thousand years, literally on the earth. That would be hard to to digest. So, and then there, even within the amillennial position. There are differences in terms of how people understand the thousand years some in the amillennial camp refer or not uh, how they view the thousand years specifically but how they define the term first resurrection there is a way in which we define the first resurrection as regeneration okay that so when we talk about the first resurrection Uh, The phrase is often used throughout the New Testament to indicate regeneration and our union with Christ. So what do we mean by the first resurrection? Some people limit, even in the amillennial camp, would limit first resurrection solely to our, our regeneration and our present union with Christ. Uh, John uses this expression similarly or in that context in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, where he says that we know that we have passed out of death into life. So, pass out of death into life, resurrection language. Uh, obviously, a, a, a one that, that stands out is uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Let me turn to that. Yeah, Romans 6, verse 4. In fact, that whole scenario, 1 through 4, uh, uses that same sort of language uh, where Paul says, I'll begin with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us? Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, obviously, there's legitimacy to making the correlation to resurrection and regeneration and union with Christ. You see it similarly in uh, one of my favorite passages in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul reasons the same way. And um, also, by the way, in Ephesians, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We have passed through uh, by way of our representative, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we have passed into the holy of holies. But Paul says in in Colossians chapter three, beginning in verse one, if you then have been raised with Christ, there it is, resurrection, regeneration, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden uh, hidden with Christ in God. And then here's an interesting statement, especially in light of what we're looking at here in the book of Revelation. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So one could argue from these passages that when John speaks of uh, the first resurrection, that his point of reference is our regeneration and therefore our union with Christ, because by proxy or by, by virtue of our faith, where Christ is, we are, and where we are, he is. So therefore, uh, one could say that's, that's the case, that it speaks of regeneration and reunion with Christ. But in this context, the first resurrection has a more specific point of reference. And the specific point of reference are those who have, uh, whose faithful testimony of the gospel, and those who have refused to worship the beast, and those who have refused to be marked by the beast. And as a result of that, they die. Now, hold in mind, this is still in the context of the thousand years. So if the thousand years is now, then what we are saying in essence is that the first resurrection refers to those who die during this period. So believers who die in the faith. Now let me back up for a moment because When we see what is said of of these um, who will be raised, uh, these martyrs who have lost their lives, notice how they are described. They did not worship the beast. They held fast to their testimony. Their testimony is not their salvation story. Their testimony is their being witnesses to the content of the gospel message. That's what it means. It doesn't mean... Well, my testimony is this. When I did this, then, the no, it's not your personal story. It Their testimony, we use it in the, in the sense of uh, a witness, on the witness stand. You're testifying to what you know to be true. And their testimony is to the word of God and specifically the gospel. They are witnesses of the gospel message. But not only are they witnesses of the gospel message, they also have suffered or they have not been marked by the beast now that part is important to me because what it indicates and we've made this point as we have talked about the mark of the beast what it is and what it is not is that to receive the mark of the beast is a willful action which means no one can sneak whatever is meant by the mark of the beast It's not going to be snuck, you know, no one can sneak it on you. It's not going to come through a vaccine. No one is going to slip the mark of the beast into you without your knowledge. And so the mark of the beast is intentionally and consciously received or rejected. Part of the reason for their martyrdom is they refuse to receive the mark of the beast, which means they had choice, and not only did they refuse to receive the mark of the beast, but in conjunction with it, they refused to worship the beast. Now remember, after the thousand year or reign, just prior to the Lord's return, when the and this is the emphasis in the first three verses that. That Satan, who has been restrained for this thousand-year period, will be released, and he will be released to deceive the nations. The deception is, is is something that he's he's been deceiving them. We know that he's been deceiving them throughout even the course of his restraint. But when he is no longer restrained, he will be more. Uh, the deception of the Satan will, uh, of of the beast will be more widespread, and in conjunction with it, you will have the false prophet who will give religious credibility to the false narratives of the beast, and then it will be for the purpose of getting people who are who don't belong to the Lord and some who might be confused. To get them to worship the beast and to willfully receive his mark and identify with the beast. This is one of the reasons I push back so hard on trying to wrap the American flag around our Bible. Because when people do that, then what we end up doing is confusing the kingdom of God with the passing kingdom. And so those who will receive, uh, who will be persecuted, and this is really what John has uh, an eye towards, those who will be persecuted, not just during this period of the thousand years, but when the beast is released, there will be greater persecution because there will be greater pressure to receive the false narrative of the beast which is validated by false prophets. So here's what we see. Those who have been faithful to the testimony of the gospel, those who have refused to worship the beast or receive his mark, their death during the thousand-year period is for them resurrection. It's the first resurrection. And he says those who receive who who are raised they will not suffer the second death and that's so he's not talking about bodily resurrection at this point in other words he's he's following a pattern we've seen that we see in the new testament as paul says especially to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord uh in chapter 14 of of revelation and we'll look at verse 13. Uh, verse 13, it says, and actually I'm going to go back to verse 12, verses 12 and 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed." are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That's what John is describing here. So now the question might be, then what's the point? What's the point of this second vision? As we said, the first three verses are really talking about the uh, or showing the thousand years from an earthly perspective what's going to happen is at the end of that thousand years satan will be released and he will be allowed to deceive the nations this is what we've experienced already in thousand years so really the point of the first vision is to tell us that as the time nears for the lord to return he will allow satan to exercise more deception over the nations, it has nothing to do with our evangelistic efforts. It'll be, it it will it will meet with with competition and 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 contention, but it won't it won't frustrate God's purposes. But in that period, the false narrative of this, of, of Satan will be will get, gain broader and wider acceptance, and as a result. Those who refuse to accept that false narrative and who refuse to worship the the, the beast or the state for that matter, those who refuse to worship but remain faithful to the cause of the gospel, you're going to be persecuted. And so the the persecution will be more intense because the opposition will be or the the false narrative will be more uh, widespread. So you'll stand out. And so therefore, he's showing us in that first vision that as the nations are more greatly deceived, there will be greater agitation from the evil one. So then he shows us the second vision to remind us that even though there may be loss of life, as it was during the thousand years, your loss of life is really victory you will share in the reign of Christ until he comes and he will vindicate. So the point of this second vision of the thousand-year reign is intended really as an assurance and an encouragement for saints. Even after Satan is no longer restrained, his deception of the nations may indeed lead to greater persecution. But those whose faith is in Christ and the gospel are secure and he will deliver you and he will vindicate you. And as proof of that, he shows those saints or he has seen those saints who have died even during this thousand year period for their faith. And they have, instead of them losing, he sees them victorious. So the thousand years may cause some people um, during this period to lose their life because of their claim to to the gospel. And as that uh, false narrative increases and and becomes uh, expanded and more extensive, then the persecution will be more intense. And so John is saying, Christ presently rules. And not only does he reign, look at the way he describes uh, these saints. He says that they have, um, not only are they victorious with him, giving a, having, having been given authority, but in verse 5 it says, um, or in verse uh, 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So he's showing us this is really kind of a spiritualized version of what we see in the book of Hebrews, that we are indeed surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There are those innumerable saints who have lost their lives during this period until Christ returned. But we saw them from a, a human vantage point overthrown or defeated. But the spiritual vantage point is that they are exalted. They are enthroned. They are victorious. So the encouragement for the saints until the Lord returns because the next scene that he's going to show us is the final conflict. And the reminder is that the conflict may be more intense because of the restraints being removed from the evil one, but the faithfulness of God is as such that even if we lose or lay down our lives before the final judgment, we will lay down our life and pick up a crown, and like those saints who have been beheaded but are now seated on the thrones in heaven, we also will reign because he rules. He who redeemed our souls rules, and as we by faith are are in union with him and are seated in the heavenly places even as we exist on the earth, When we lay down these bodies until he finally comes, he comes in final judgment, when we lay down these bodies, our souls will be united with him and we will be exalted and enthroned even as he is. Brothers and sisters, the thousand years is upon us. Maybe it's at the end, we don't know, but what we know is that Christ rules and our faith connects us to his reign. And there is nothing that can happen to us that can remove our position with him or reverse what his blood has accomplished on our behalf. Look at the transition. Chapter 6, blood poured out on the altar. Chapter 20, those whose blood has been shed are seated. On heavenly thrones. That's our hope and that's our confidence. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for all that you have granted to us. We thank you for life and godliness. We thank you for a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. We thank you for the victory of our savior and even in his exalted state, we live in a world that reminds us that we are cursed, but he who rules is sovereign even over the curse that we experience. And it's out of this darkness that you have called us unto yourself. So Father, as we trust you, things are seem out of hand around us, but give us the confidence to know that our souls are secure in you. We do thank you for the reminder that the thousand years which our Savior reigns and rules, and as the Apostle says, he must reign until his enemies are made his footstool. Give us confidence to stand in that and to get the word of the gospel out, even in the midst of these trying times, because we know that all that you have appointed unto eternal life will respond to that gospel message let us never lose sight of that message and never never let us never lose confidence in its efficacy we do thank you for your words we thank you for the reminder that the saints as the savior presently rule strengthen us now for the days that are ahead and we ask these things in christ's name amen